Hi folks, my name is Chris and I'm the artist and co-founder at Explorer Maps. Hi, this is Vanessa, Chris's wife. I have been a number one fan of Chris's art since I first met him in the late 1990s. Which map will you get to help you treasure your own special times? Please be sure to use the promo code MANDELA for a discount when you visit explorermaps.com. Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure radio series and podcast dedicated to collecting stories and sounds from around the world in order to take you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. This episode was recorded on location in collaboration with Explorer Maps. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of adventure from both near and far, as well as information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can subscribe to the podcast and learn about our international outreach projects at traillesstraveled.net. And now, here's your host, international expedition guide, conservationist, and yogi, Mandela. This afternoon, the Trail Less Traveled is being recorded in the Lamar Valley of Illusto National Park. And I am currently hiking back from the Rose Creek Pen, which was one of the pens that was built for wolf reintroduction in 1995. And it's an amazing view. I'm actually going to hand it over to Sam Archibald. He is lead field instructor for your Yellowstone Forever. So Sam, first of all, thank you so much for agreeing yeah, to chat with course. me as we walk back. Could you describe for the listener what you're looking at right now? Yeah, so we're currently standing on the edge of Lamar Valley, which is a large secluded valley in the heart of Yellowstone's northern range. Yellowstone National Park is about 2.2 million acres in total, not including the vast array of wilderness areas and other public lands surrounding the park. But the heart of this ecosystem in terms of wildlife is this northern range, which tends to be much lower in elevation than the rest of the park, looking at about 6,000 to 7,000 feet, whereas much of Yellowstone is this high plateau, about 7,000 to 8,000 feet. That plus three major river systems that cut through the northern range here, the Lamar River, the Yellowstone River, and the Gardner River make for ideal habitat, which is really the epitome of Yellowstone. So when we think about this place, we're talking about a fully intact ecosystem with all of the species that were here historically, bison, wolves, moose, bighorn sheep, all of our smaller critters, otters, wolverine, pine martens, this whole cadre of species that have evolved together now back on the landscape together, which is very uh, unique. There aren't too many places in North America or even much of the temperate world where we can say that. Yellowstone is perhaps the largest intact temperate ecosystem anywhere in the world. We have lots of larger wilderness areas throughout the tropics, throughout the boreal and arctic regions. But with the temperate world being so heavily settled, we don't have many large expanses of wilderness left. So to have that and to have an intact ecosystem 
like Yellowstone is such a great opportunity to observe how these species interact with one another. And we'll see that that codependence is so critical, both to the Yellowstone story, but also to understanding these species as a whole in all their complexity and their effect, not only on the immediate species that they interact with, but on the broader landscape as a whole, all working in this complex interplay of a multi-predator, multi-play system. So as we walk, even right now, we can see several herds of bison scattered across the landscape. We can see coyote tracks that we walked across earlier. Walking up, we had several ravens flying over. Earlier in the day, we had bighorn sheep, otters, wolves, this full array of species that can be seen here in such proximity, which is such an incredible opportunity. And as we walk along, you might be able to hear the crunching of the snow. It is cold today and just came out from a beautiful snowstorm above us. But Sam, I'd love to hear a little bit more about you and the evolution of you as a naturalist. So tell us about where you grew up and how conservation and adventure was a part of your childhood. How did you encounter this place that you have obviously fallen so much in love with that you spend every day here? Yeah, absolutely. I wish I could claim to be from Montana. I can't. (laughs) I was actually born in Puerto Rico, grew up in Pennsylvania, and spent a lot of my childhood roaming through the Pennsylvania countryside and the Allegheny National Forests. My family was very active and outdoors, so we would often go hiking, camping, backpacking, canoeing. Took several large family vacations where we went and paddled around the Boundary Water Canoe Wilderness for two weeks or took a long bicycle tour across the Blue Ridge Parkway. So recreation and nature are always very much a part of my life. For the longest time, I didn't see it as a career path. In hindsight, it's one of those things that I don't know why it's the perfect fit for me for so many reasons, but just one of those things that you don't consider until doors open up for you. I got my undergraduate degree in history, thought I was going to be a teacher, but pretty quickly realized that classroom education was not for me. And so I ended up, after I graduated, going into the Peace Corps and doing work down in Ecuador with a focus on youth development and outdoor education, which I found much more rewarding, much more of a natural fit. And so when I came back to the States after service, I ended up pursuing my master's in environmental management. And that following summer, got a job working in Yellowstone as a park ranger, helping out with the Youth Conservation Corps program that we have here, which is a very cool program. Yellowstone is the only park unit that has a residential core. There's some other park units that have day programs and some forest units that have residential programs. But this program takes kind of 15 to 18 year olds selected through a lottery system and pays them to come to Yellowstone and work throughout the week on different types of conservation projects, putting in bear boxes, trailhead signs, that sort of thing, helping the park collect some data on both our species as well as our visitors that will help make management decisions. And then the youth get to recreate on the weekends and explore this ecosystem. So that was a wonderful introduction to Yellowstone. And what I thought was going to be one season has quickly turned into a permanent gig. 
there's a lot to love about this place. Um, but I think what speaks to me the most is just the vivacity of it, how alive it feels. You know, there are so many pretty beautiful spots across this country where you go to Zion or Canyonlands or the Sierras and it just takes your breath away. But I've never been on a landscape that just feels so alive and there's so much potential of on any one hike, running into bison, running into wolves, running into some bird that you've never seen before. And so I never know what I'm going to experience and just find continual joy and amazement exploring this place. That's the voice of Sam Archibald. He is the lead field instructor for Yellowstone Forever. Tell us about Yellowstone Forever. Yeah, of course. Yellowstone Forever is the official nonprofit partner of the park. So we help channel philanthropy to fund park projects, including both conservation projects like Yellowstone Cutthroat Conservation, like our Yellowstone Wolf Project. So about 60% of the Wolf Project comes from philanthropy. All of the Cougar Project, lots of funding for our youth programs, funding, for example, the Junior Ranger booklets that the park gives out, funding for various staff positions, funding for stock purchases, infrastructure, other things like that, supporting the park with donor funds that can be used with much greater flexibility than the National Park Service budget. Mm -hmm. And we are taking your Kinship and Communities course. I would love if you could share a little bit about what you talked about today. Yeah, absolutely. So this course is one of our field seminars. So within Yellowstone Forever, we have the Yellowstone Institute where we run various types of education programming. And so our field seminars tend to do a deep dive into specific topics. And in this case, we chose to study kinship, which is this way of looking at the more than human world as kin. So pushing back on the assumption that is prevalent throughout much of Western culture that places Homo sapiens on this level above and apart from the rest of the animate world. Mm -hmm. Yellowstone is such a great place to study that for many reasons. One of the key components of kinship is this idea of reciprocity, right? Being grateful for all of the gifts that we have been given, the life-sustaining air, the water, the food we eat, that all comes ultimately from the land, even though in industrial society, it can often be hard to acknowledge that. But with those gifts comes responsibility to give back. And that can be simple actions like Conservation Corps or personal sustainability, but also on a larger scale, it can be things like rewilding with what we've seen in Yellowstone with wolf reintroduction, with bison conservation, with protecting our avian species, all of this on the largest scale that demonstrates that humans do have a role in the ecosystem beyond that of kind of the span of negative harmful impacts we have a responsibility and a role in actively doing good and helping this land this place our fellow species thrive on the land i love it yes so this morning we looked at a black wolf and you shared some really interesting wolf facts with us today i learned a lot about wolves i was wondering if you could share a few of those and then tell us a little bit about the pen that we are hiking back from as we speak 
yeah, so, so we were fortunate enough to see the Junction Butte Pack, which is historically one of our largest packs along the Northern Range, and certainly the main pack within Lamar Valley where we are currently. It's been around since 2012, and at one point was close to being one of our largest packs ever, up to 35 wolves, which is absolutely massive, close to three and a half times the average pack size. But with the nature of wolf packs and being a wolf in the wild in general is fairly difficult. We're currently crossing over Rose Creek here. Just with all of the danger inherent in being about a hundred pound animal whose primary prey is a five to 700 pound elk, lots of difficulty throughout daily life. So we see wolves in the wild tend to have very short life expectancies, about four years within a protected area like Yellowstone. And with the density of wolf packs along the Northern Range especially, we see these sagas of packs rising and falling and kind of these intergenerational rivalries. So the junctions are currently on a bit of a downturn. Last winter they had about 22 wolves, but 15 of them were yearlings. So basically teenagers, right? Who if you have teenagers in your life, you might know that they eat a lot and they don't necessarily contribute a lot to the family. So this past breeding season, we saw the junctions had several different pups, you know, five, six pups at least, but only one of them survived, likely because we had this unbalanced ratio of about seven adults to 15 yearlings. And we think that the mothers and the pups were likely just not getting enough to eat which is unfortunate and regrettable, but long-term wolves are a resilient species and especially with that social structure designed to overcome all the adversities of the world. So we'll be keeping an eye on them throughout the coming years to see if they can recover from this pup season. They have had a very long successful run under the current alpha male and the current alpha female herself is the oldest wolf we have in the park going on 11 years this coming April, currently 10. We've also seen with wolves, we know experience matters. Experienced wolves are the ones that are most effective in an interpact conflict. They're the ones that are most successful at taking down prey, not necessarily because of physicality, but knowing what to look for in weakened prey, knowing how to use the terrain to their advantage and use terrain traps like a creek or a narrow draw or something else that allows them to take down prey. Hopefully, between those two elderly alphas, they're able to lead the Junction Butte through the upcoming breeding season and have a successful pup recruitment year. Nice. And so we just came back from Rose Creek Pen, and I was wondering if you could end this segment by just telling us a little bit about that pen. Yeah, so the Rose Creek Pen was one of several enclosures that when wolves were reintroduced in 1995 and 1996, wolves were placed in the enclosures. 
is a way to allow them to get accustomed to this ecosystem and recognize the amount of prey available here and hopefully settle down. Wolves can travel hundreds of miles in search of mates and then return, find their way back to their home territories. So the concern was with wolves being captured in northern Alberta and brought down here that our wolves would immediately turn north, leave the park, and be potentially at risk of being poached as they traveled across the land. So we really wanted to ensure that they stayed here in the park. So the enclosures were one of the ways that we did that. So this enclosure specifically housed the Rose Creek pack, one of the initial three packs brought into the park that has a very famous story and told in, well, several different books on Yellowstone Wolf Reintroduction and this incredible story of a wolf coming in and adopting a rival's young and raising them as his own. Those pups, and especially that alpha female, would go on to have a very successful run, and about 90% of the wolves in the park today, we can still trace that genetic lineage back to the wolves that were in this enclosure in 1995 and 1996. This evening, the trail less traveled is being recorded here at the Lamar Buffalo Ranch in Lamar Valley, Yellowstone National Park. And I am participating in a course with the Yellowstone Forever Institute. And I'm here with the lead field instructor for Yellowstone Forever, Sam Archibald. So Sam, I was wondering if you could maybe kick us off by telling us about the significance of the Lamar Buffalo Ranch. Of course. So the Lamar Buffalo Ranch is significant for two main reasons, kind of the center of two main conservation initiatives. So the first, and the reason it exists, is bison conservation. So Yellowstone is significant in that it was the site of the last wild bison herd. So throughout the 19th century, many of our bison slaughtered at an epic scale. So between somewhere from 30 to 60 million prior to European contact to very quickly by the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, looking at only a few hundred bison left, most of them in privately owned conservation herds, with about 25 bison left here in Yellowstone still ranging across the landscape. So when the Army moved in to manage Yellowstone starting in 1886, one of the things they did was move to conserve our bison herds, initially corralling them at Mammoth, but later bringing them out here and combining them with two other herds. So the walking coyote herd that was originally from a member of the CSKT tribes who saw the writing on the wall and was able to capture six bison calves and started his own private herd up there combined with three bulls from another private conservation herd, the Charles Goodnight herd. So those 21 animals were brought with our 25 animals here combined and initially raised much like livestock. So with fencing all around the Lamar Valley, 
containing these animals with supplemental feeding with Timothy Hay being grown in the valley and fed to them throughout the year with this area being the center of that. So we still have the historic Buffalo Keepers cabin from that era, as well as the bunkhouse and the barn, all of which are historic buildings that make up the heart of the ranch. Bison were managed in that manner as the population grew kind of shifting from fencing them in to actually fencing them out. They would still grow Timothy hay in the valley, but only fencing and supplementally feeding and during winter. As it continued to grow, we had kind of an internal herd and an external herd. But eventually around the 1950s, as our populations continued to grow, removing the fencing, allowing these animals to disperse throughout the landscape, but still maintaining the Buffalo Ranch as a historic site. Starting in the 1970s, we did add cabins brought up from Yellowstone Lake that we now run education programs out here using the bunkhouses, our, our lodging and classrooms. So it is a great opportunity to stay right in the heart of Lamar Valley, where we're currently have a very large bison herd moving across the landscape, much larger than 25 animals, which is uh, incredible. Starting in the 1990s, we get this as the center for another major conservation initiative, in this case, rewilding with wolves. So wolves were gone from the Yellowstone landscape by about the 1920s, subject to very harsh control measures since the onset of European settlers with many hunting wolves poisoning carcasses with strychnine or wolf lichen so that any animals that fed on them would perish, including wolves, but also lots of other animals that might be interested in a carcass left in the woods, so killed indiscriminately. But we also saw baiting, snaring, baiting of dens, sometimes even gassing dens, infecting wild populations with mange and then releasing them to spread it elsewhere. So very harsh measures that were very effective. So by early days of the park, our wolves entirely gone and absent from this landscape for 70 years, which led to significant ecological consequences on our rangelands being overgrazed or elk herd and kind of spiraling out of control through these huge boom and bust cycles. So starting in the 1990s, there was an effort to bring back wolves and restore them. And perhaps one of the most significant conservation projects ever, certainly one of the most significant rewilding efforts ever, where 31 wolves were brought down from Canada and reintroduced into Yellowstone. The concern was that with wolves being such directional species, right, they're capable of dispersing hundreds of miles across the land and then finding their way back if they don't find a mate or they don't find suitable territory. So there was real concern that the wolves that we brought down would immediately turn around and start making their way north, which where we're sitting, the park boundary is only about five miles north of us. So real concern that all this effort would be for nothing as the wolves immediately left. So one of the things the Wolf Project did was bring... A, entire pack units, so trying to capture packs together so as a social animal they would be less stressed, less likely to leave. But B, they decided to do what we call a soft release, so holding the animals in enclosure pens, about an one-acre fenced-in areas, for about six weeks, 
after they were brought in to help the wolves get accustomed to this landscape, recognize how much prey was available here, and hopefully get comfortable enough that once they were let out of the pens, they wouldn't leave. So this area was the main staging area for one of the pens, the Rose Creek pen that is about a mile and a half up the hill behind us. There were two other pens in 95 and then a few others in 96. But this being one of the main ones that was used for the Rose Creek pack, as well as the following year, the Druid Peak pack, both of which went on to have very successful runs and have famous stories associated with their rise as our wolf population spread and successfully populated the Northern Range. That is the voice of Sam Archibald, and he is the lead field instructor for Yellowstone Forever. Now, we are on day two of the Yellowstone Communities and Kinship course with the Yellowstone Forever Institute. And today we took a look at humans as a keystone species. And I really enjoyed the conversation that occurred in the classroom today. And I was wondering if you could share with the listeners a little bit about humans and their role as a keystone species. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the key things we see very connected to the Buffalo Ranch and conservation efforts and rewilding is that when we think about humans relationship with the wild, we usually frame it in terms of impacts, negative impacts in particular. And there's certainly some truth to there, right? Homo sapiens have a huge impact on the landscape around us. But what we often miss is that we also have the potential and perhaps many would say a responsibility to have positive impacts and to do what we can to care for the land around us. So kinship helps reframe our thinking in terms of more of a relationship with the environment rather than what is often a dominant paradigm in Western culture of looking at man as a separate entity, often an entity above the rest of the animate world, which that mindset can lead to a lot of harm and automatically frames conversations in terms of values. So kinship helps reframe this in terms of a relationship since we intuitively know kind of what's required of relationships. So when we think about what we can do for and with the natural world, it helps frame the conversation instead of around climate change and sustainability and all of these abstract things that are very important, but also are difficult for us as individuals to grapple with, right? Thinking about global warming can often just be overwhelming to the point that it's crippling, this crippling inaction of this is not a problem that I can solve. But kinship helps reframe that to focus on the things we can solve and the good we can do. So very connected to our stories in Yellowstone of bison conservation, of wolf reintroduction, both significant examples of humans playing a key role in bringing these species back from extinction or extirpation. And instead of trying to dominate their will on the land and impose their will on the land, 
trying to work with the land and with these natural systems using species like wolves and their relation to everything else. Beavers, elk, willows, aspen, cottonwoods, moose, bison, building on those systems and those relationships to work with the land. Can we highlight the ways in which the National Park Service is working with the Intertribal Buffalo Council to reintroduce buffalo onto tribal lands? Absolutely. That is a key part of the conversation. So starting in 2019 with funding from Yellowstone Forever, the park has an interagency bison management plan and is one of the components of that plan. The park has a bison quarantine program where bison are captured as they're leaving the park. So not actively capturing within the park proper, but especially in years where we have a harsh winter, bison being migratory animals often tend to leave. So as they're leaving, capturing them at the park border, rounding them up and testing them for brucellosis, which is a bovine disease that causes stillbirth, mm-hmm. heavily regulated in the cattle industry. And part of the reason why bison are a controversial species and why it's difficult to have them moving about on public land since there are real concerns that they could potentially spread brucellosis to livestock. But the transfer program is aimed at preventing the slaughter of bison, allowing our Yellowstone bison, which are nearly genetically pure, apart from the introduced populations, they've been migrating across the landscape since perpetuity, Mm -hmm. right? A historic population here that has never been domesticated fully wild. So critical to use those genes to rewild other areas. Unfortunately, many bison populations throughout this country contain significant portions of cattle genes, beefalo, Mm -hmm. as we call them, which it's much more ideal to populate these populations with Yellowstone bison, ensuring that genetic purity and these animals with ancestral knowledge of migration routes and practices to continue thriving. So starting in 2019, the park sent the first shipment of bison up to the Fort Peck Reservation and worked with the Intertribal Buffalo Council, who then takes them from Fort Peck and disperses them out to other tribes. I believe it's something like 50 tribes that are now in the program and have actively received bison throughout the United States. So up in Alaska, we had several bison FedExed up there throughout the Midwest, even some tribes in the eastern United States receiving bison, which is critical not only for rewilding, right? We know bison are a keystone species. They exert a disproportionate impact on the landscape around them, like humans. So anywhere we have bison, we have soil being aerated. We have grazing that comes from an animal that's grazing as it moves across the landscape. And we'll see that disturbance actually contributes and increases the productivity of the ecosystem. We have bison rubbing against trees to prevent forests from taking over valuable meadow habitat. We have enzymes in bison saliva that helps trigger grass growth, very fertile dung. We have bison wallows that create different wetlands and replenish our aquifers and 
create different habitat for insects and forbs and all this variety of species. So on one hand, we have this huge array of ecological benefits, but especially for tribal members, the bison is such a critical cultural element that it's hard to understate the importance to tribes of having bison visible, present in their lives again, restoring those relationships. Many tribes, I should say, evolved in context with bison, right? Bison are undoubtedly this continent's most important natural resource and most important cultural resource, supporting countless cultures throughout history and now continuing to support those cultures. Bison meat is some of the healthiest you can find with very low fat content, very healthy source of protein that is critical to food insecure communities, restoring that presence. We see restoring cultural ceremonies, all of these deeply rooted material and spiritual connections that surround the bison. So by bringing them back, not only restoring ecosystems, but also helping cultures reclaim those lost roots. It was while we were living internationally, about 11 years ago, that Explorer Maps first started, when Chris and his brother Greg decided to join forces and bring the maps to the whole wide world. Hi, this is Vanessa, Chris's wife. Each map is a labour of love, and I am lucky enough to see them all grow step by step from the early research and planning stages onto a large white piece of paper through pencilling, inking, and finally seeing the real magic happen as Chris adds the colour. As each one reaches the end phase, I get to examine them closely in the hope that I spot any unfinished bits before Chris sends them off. But there's always new illustrations to see every time. I love going to the Missoula warehouse when we're in Montana to see each unique map on the incredible range of products that Explorer Maps now has. Having lived away from home and families for the past 17 years, our aim of connecting people and place is very poignant to me. And for that reason, my favorite maps are Flathead and the Maasai Mara because these two places are central to our extended family gatherings and where we have made the best of memories. Which map will you get to help you treasure your own special times? Please be sure to use the promo code MANDELA for a discount when you visit exploramaps.com. I am here with Sam Archibald, the lead field instructor for Yellowstone Forever, and I am here participating in his field seminar. We're looking at communities and kinship in the park. Sam, I was just looking at the list of all the programs and offerings and opportunities there are to support Yellowstone Forever, support wildlife within this ecosystem. I was wondering if you could share some of the ones that pop out to you. So Yellowstone Forever is the official nonprofit partner of the park. We support the park through education and philanthropy. Education being the Yellowstone Institute that hosted this class, as well as many other courses from field seminars that dive deep into a certain topic like wolves or ravens or geology, often taught by outside experts, as well as a variety of other programs that allow people to experience the park. On the philanthropy side, Yellowstone helps direct five private philanthropy to the park. There's a federal agency 
the park cannot solicit funds and has a restricted budget on the federal cycle. Having a nonprofit partner frees up dollars and gives the park a lot of flexibility. So we help fund things like the wolf and cougar conservation. So about 60% of the wolf project's budget comes from donor funds through Yellowstone Forever, many of those supporting staff positions so that the project can have year-round technicians helping to monitor and study our wolf population. The entirety of the cougar project is funded through philanthropy, much of our native fish restoration dealing with the Yellowstone cutthroat comes from private philanthropy. The bison transfer program out at Stevens Creek helping to capture bison as they're exiting the park and send them up to the Fort Peck Reservation where they're transferred to the Intertribal Buffalo Council and from there dispersed across the country to tribes helping to restore both ecosystems and native cultural traditions. We help lessen human-wildlife conflicts through things like bear box construction, funding wildlife safety positions for the Park Service, lots of other ecosystem and conservation projects, as well as education. So funding things like the Yellowstone Youth Conservation Corps that brings 15 to 18-year-olds to the park to get paid to do conservation work like installing bear boxes, constructing trail signs, as well as other work, helping the park collect information on visitors and some of our wildlife. Things like Expedition Yellowstone, the program for fourth grade students to come and visit the park. Things like the Junior Ranger booklet, things like bilingual interpretive rangers, distance learning that many of our education technicians do in schools across the country, funding Native American interpretation collaboratives, a wide range of education projects, and then finally some infrastructure, trails, boardwalks, exhibits, stock purchases, other things like that that help the park fulfill its mission. Beautiful. Let's talk about today. So I'm participating in your Communities and Kinship course here in Yellowstone National Park. And I can say that while we had an incredible morning, we saw multiple wolves and we had a wonderful discussion that I'll never forget for the rest of my life. So can you tell us a little bit about today's lessons? Yeah, absolutely. So today was the third and final day of the course, trying to drive everything home and think about what we will take away from this as we leave Yellowstone and head to wherever we call home. We spent the afternoon discussing the ramifications of this kinship model, looking at the world with an emphasis on relationships and all that we share with the more than human world, as well as our responsibility towards our more than human kin with kind of two dominant questions in mind. The first, looking at this idea of what kind of ancestor do I want to be that comes from Michael Dahl and Winona LaDuc, recognizing that whether or not we choose to have children, we are kin and we are ancestors and everything we have is borrowed. Like the air we breathe, the water we drink, the bodies we have, we are, is borrowed from this thing we call earth and we'll go back. And so the question is, what kind of legacy do we want to leave? What kind of legacy are we currently leaving in our day-to-day actions? And how can we use the time and the position that we have to 
be good relatives to both the generations that come after us, both human and non-human. There aren't easy answers to that. Obviously a very difficult question, but I think Yellowstone provides some really great examples. So we spent kind of the final part of the course talking about two individuals that I highly respect, one being Molly Beatty, the first female director of the Fish and Wildlife Service who spent her career working to advocate for non-human persons, helping to defend the budget of the Fish and Wildlife Service, helping to reintroduce wolves to Yellowstone, even coming here on the ground, holding a press conference and continuing to fight for these species, even while she was suffering from terminal cancer and the struggle of continuing that effort throughout the last year of her life, doing all she could to protect and be a good ancestor to the natural world. The second person being Mary Marr, who was only our third permanent female ranger here, spent her career working her way up through our wildlife research division, achieved a supervisory role, advanced a lot of our understanding about this key species and the social dynamics of matriarchal herds moving across the landscape, who ultimately resigned her position to work as a a research tech and spend more time out in the field directly with these animals, a decision that I really respect. And these two things, right, these two people represent the broader efforts that have occurred in Yellowstone, conserving our bison from coming within 23 heartbeats of going extinct and having no more wild herds on this landscape, losing our most important cultural and natural resource on this continent period. And then with Molly, with wolves and all of the effort to bring back this keystone species and watching the cascading effects on the landscape of having this species and recognizing that in both of these cases, humans may have played a critical role in driving them nearly extinct or extirpating them from this area. And that's something we have to reckon with. Mm -hmm. But also recognizing that humans have the capacity for good and perhaps the responsibility to care for these animals and to do what we can with the wild spaces that we have left to bring back all of these species and to restore these ecosystems. You were discussing the fact that humans are keystone species. Mm Mm-hmm. Every action we take has an effect, whether it's positive or negative. And I love the fact that you mentioned that, yes, negative things have happened. Let's speak truthfully about that. Let's learn from those mistakes, but then also look at the comeback that's positive. And I think in this day and age, I really appreciate as much positivity as I possibly can. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit more about some of the positive things that are happening here in Yellowstone National Park. I'll start with saying that one of the advantages of kinship is that it reframes the conversation. Right? When we think about human impacts, we often start with the negative, and especially in the Anthropocene, the age of climate change, that can just be crippling and destroy any hope, Right, leaving people unable to do the work that needs to be done right now in this moment to protect the wild species around us. Mm-hmm. So focusing on the positive, I think, is critical to fulfilling our responsibilities as a keystone species and as a key part of this landscape. 
Yellowstone is representative of that for so many reasons, right? We've already talked about wolf conservation and bison reintroduction, but currently lots of other work going on. The greater Yellowstone ecosystem is this expanse of 2.2 million acres within the park, but then several national forests, other park units, lots of private land that are well-suited to conservation, altogether somewhere between 16 and 22 million acres of protected land here. So that makes for great habitat for lots of our sensitive species, like wolverine, like wolves, like great gray owls, and not only having habitat for these species, but also being able to study all of these species working together is critical. You can make the argument that we can't understand species individually, right? We are all part of a community. We are all part of this ecosystem. And we've seen that play out with wolves and elk, with what often seems like this very linear system having huge consequences with grizzly recovery, with cutthroat, right? How do fish kill elk? Mm -hmm. When we look at lake trout introduction and how that has shifted what grizzly bears feed on in the spring towards elk calves, significantly affecting our elk population with the recovery of our grizzly population as a whole, with our cougar population, all of these interdependent systems working together are critical to understanding how these animals function. So there aren't many other places in North America where we can study all of our megafauna interacting with one another. So that's critical. If we want to talk about other conservation initiatives, there's so much going on here with native fish, with swans and preserving Yellowstone's trumpeter swan population, with monitoring sensitive species like our pika and whitebark pine and looking at how they are responding to an increasingly warming world. So much ongoing research that is critical and inspiring when we look at the resilience of a holistic landscape. The Trail Less Traveled is dedicated to collecting stories and sounds from some of the most remote locations around the world. The radio version of the show premieres every Sunday night at 6 Mountain Time, and you can stream it live online at trail1033.com. If you missed the premiere, the show is also a podcast, available everywhere. I would like to extend my gratitude to Yellowstone Forever for hosting me at the Lamar Buffalo Ranch, I would also like to extend my gratitude to a small family business based in Missoula, Montana, Explore Maps. Explore Maps and the Trail Less Traveled are combining forces to connect people and place through art, history, culture, conservation, and storytelling. You can learn more by visiting exploremaps.com. That's it for this week's adventure, my friends in Missoula and around the world. But until next week, please remember, conservation is not a spectator sport. Living in Missoula is a privilege. With privilege comes responsibility. Get informed, get engaged, and use your voice on behalf of wildlife and wild places.